Chapter 5 Knowledge and Power If ignorance is bliss, why do people want knowledge? This is a question with a long pedigree in Western culture. Prometheus brought fire from Mount Olympus down to Earth and its mortal inhabitants. In doing so, he enraged Zeus, the supreme deity, who had him chained to a rock and tortured for eternity by an eagle feasting on his liver. And that was just a punishment for Prometheus. Human beings were sent a curse in the form of Pandora with her box of ills that would afflict humankind forever once it was unlocked. Disease, sickness, sorrow, envy, hatred. Prometheus's fire may have been a metaphor for knowledge. In Aeschylus's version of the legend, in addition to the burning branch, Prometheus introduced humans to the arts, including writing, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, and medicine. In other words, Prometheus decided to bring a liberal arts curriculum down from the heavens, and he and all of humankind paid a dreadful price for it. So did Adam and Eve. The story at the heart of biblical history is about the dangers of knowledge. According to Genesis, there were many trees in the Garden of Eden, but only two had names, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. God forbade Adam and Eve from eating the fruit of the latter, warning that if they did, they would die. The serpent, representing Satan, told the couple not to be timid, assuring them that eating the fruit would not result in death. God didn't want them to eat it, the serpent told Eve, because if they did, your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Adam and Eve plucked the fruit and ate it. When God realized what they had done, he was merciless in his punishment. He told Eve, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and then condemned women for eternity to the pains of childbirth. He told Adam, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. And of course, he banished them from the Garden of Eden. In other words, human beings came to earth as fallen creatures, born in original sin because they desired knowledge. This notion that knowledge is dangerous has recurred in Western thought for millennia. Given that the West has made such great strides in its understanding of the universe, it's interesting to note that non-Western cultures do not have equivalent myths about the perils of learning. There are some similar stories in other civilizations, but nothing with the import of the tale of Prometheus or the biblical fall of man. Perhaps it is because the West has been so persistently inquisitive that it has also been fearful of the consequences of its curiosity. The phrase ignorance is bliss comes from a beautiful poem, Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College, by the 18th century English writer Thomas Gray. In it, the poet writes of his return to his old school and is delighted to see the happy hills, redolent of joy and youth. He conjures up a bucolic fantasy of innocent pleasures. But he then thinks about all the bad things that are in store for these young men in the real world once they leave the cloistered environment of Eton. Fear, jealousy, anger, despair, poverty, death, and sorrow's piercing dart. It's better that they not be made aware of these realities. Thought would destroy their paradise, he concludes. Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. And yet, 
Despite the danger, despite the sorrow, we keep asking questions and searching for answers. Cicero believed that it was in our nature to be drawn to the pursuit of knowledge. Many modern biologists concur, arguing that the core of being human involves the use of the brain. More than three million years ago, our ancestors began to walk on their hind legs. That freed their hands to do other things and most significantly coincided with the growth of the human brain. The big brain is the single largest point of differentiation between human beings and other animals. Richard Dawkins explains why, writing, Other species can communicate, but no other species has true language with open-ended grammar. No other species has literature, music, art, mathematics, or science. No other species makes books or complicated machines such as cars, computers, and combine harvesters. No other species devotes substantial lengths of time to pursuits that don't contribute directly to survival or reproduction. In the beginning, before we humans were writing operas and making iPads, our ancestors combined their brain power with their hands, now free from the task of walking, to forage for food and make simple tools. They use their primitive mental capacity to find ways to improve their circumstances in the natural environment, rather than simply adapting to them like all other animals. As Jacob Bronowski wrote in The Ascent of Man, man became a singular creature, not a figure in the landscape, but a shaper of the landscape. Humans sought ways to control their environment and thus became hunter-gatherers, farmers, warriors, and eventually builders of cities and states of civilizations. At the heart of farming and building was the search for knowledge, but of a practical kind. The ancient Greeks were the first to try to understand the world in an abstract sense. They called such an exploration philosophy, which means love of wisdom. This involved understanding not only human nature, but also nature itself. The latter exploration they called natural philosophy, which much later became known as science. Over time, a divide grew between the study of human beings and the study of nature. The former seemed soft and speculative, the latter hard and definitive. Bertrand Russell, the early 20th century scientist and philosopher, once pithily described the difference between science and philosophy. Science, he explained, is what we know, and philosophy is what we don't know. In this view, philosophy involves speculations about things of which one cannot have definite proof. Once you gain certainty about a particular subject, it moves from the realm of philosophy to science. For Russell, philosophy was immensely important because there was a vast array of things one did not know much about and perhaps could not know much about. But philosophy still was, in his phrase, incomplete science. The word science, after all, comes from the Latin word to know. Russell's notion of philosophy as a precursor to science makes some sense historically. Human beings wondered why the sun rose or the tides came in and speculated that there were divine spirits behind them. The Greeks posited all kinds of causes for natural phenomena, often attributing them to gods and goddesses, but also to physical and biological factors. Over the course of centuries, scientific inquiry, theorizing, experimentation, observation, rejected, corrected, and amended many of these theories. We no longer think 
that there are spirits in trees, that the sun god rides his chariot across the skies every day, or that female embryos are created due to a deficiency of heat in the body, which was Aristotle's explanation. We no longer think that the earth is flat or that it is at the center of the universe, two views that were widespread among learned scholars for centuries. Science replaced philosophy in Russell's terms. The search for knowledge gave human beings power, just as the Bible anticipated. And that power has been used for good and ill. But on the whole, there has been a steady and persistent effort to improve human life. Progress in technology and medicine certainly has dark side effects. The dangers of nuclear war, the impact of economic growth on the environment, the moral dilemmas of cloning. Over the last 500 years, however, the consequences of knowledge have been positive, and over the last 200, staggeringly positive. At the most basic level, people enjoy longer and healthier lives, possess greater material prosperity, and are organized in ways that have reduced cruelty and misery. Just as a reminder of what scientific progress means for humans, here's a brief account of how one of the most powerful men of the 17th century, Charles II of England, was treated after he had a mild stroke in 1685, from which he almost certainly would have recovered on his own. His 14 physicians, the best in the land, began by bleeding him, taking a pint of blood. The king's chief physician decided they had not gone far enough and removed an extra eight ounces by cutting into the king's shoulders. Vomiting was induced and purgatives and enemas delivered. Charles regained consciousness, but over the next five days, his physicians continued to administer enemas and bleedings. He was given sneezing powder, forced to drink various potions, and his feet were smeared with pigeon dung. Finally, after an antidote containing extracts of all the herbs and animals of the kingdom was forced down his throat, according to his physician's journal, the king died. And that was the world's finest healthcare at the time. Life expectancy around the time of Charles II was about 30 years, and it remained roughly the same until 1900. Life expectancy today is 70 years for the world population as a whole and higher for people in advanced countries. Recent material progress has been astonishing. Before the turn of the millennium, the United Nations estimated that global poverty had declined more in the second half of the 20th century than in the prior 500 years. The average Chinese person today is 40 times richer and lives 30 years longer than he or she did 50 years ago. China's progress is the most remarkable, but it is widely shared. In 1960, nearly one in five children died. Today, the ratio is one in 20. It is quite possible that extreme poverty, life on less than $1.25 a day, will be extinct in a generation. These numbers are seen mostly as a testament to scientific knowledge. And of course, it's self-evident that medicines, vaccines, and hygiene have all contributed mightily to the improvements. But the softer sciences and humanities have also yielded powerful benefits. Human beings have organized themselves in more productive ways, economically, politically, and socially. And these changes in organization and behavior have been the result of better ideas, sometimes arrived at through speculation and insight, though mostly through trial and error, which is the only way that experiments in social science can take place in the real world. In his book, The Rational Optimist, 
Matt Ridley notes that over time, human beings learned that open exchanges of ideas, goods, and services produced powerful benefits for all. He also explains that the rise of specialization, or the division of labor, increased economic output across the globe. Ideas like these were adopted haltingly, with many steps taken backward as well as forward as the unsuccessful copied the successful. In The Better Angels of Our Nature, Steven Pinker makes the now-famous claim that we are living in the most peaceful time in human history. He argues that the rise of certain ideas has had a powerful, beneficial impact on the world. The Enlightenment concepts of individual liberty, autonomy, and dignity, for instance, and the beginning of a humanitarian revolution transformed the world by ending practices like slavery. Pinko also writes about the more recent rights revolutions, which have led to less cruelty toward minorities, women, gays, and others who are not at the center of the old power structures of society. Some humanists balk at the idea that human beings have made any progress in these fundamental ways. Are we better off than the ancient Greeks, they might ask? The answer is yes, overwhelmingly, unless you were one of a handful of male Greek aristocrats, and even then, as long as you didn't get a toothache. Practices like slavery, serfdom, dueling, and the abuse of women and children have dwindled over the last few centuries as a consequence of broad humanistic ideas, the bedrock of a liberal education. To be sure, more progress is needed, and in some cases, new and perverse forms of oppression have replaced the old-fashioned, easily identifiable ones. But that cannot negate the reality that knowledge has led to human advances in tangible ways. 400 years ago, absolute monarchs governed much of the world, and the vast majority of the human population possessed little economic and political freedom. Today, most people live in democracies, and whatever their flaws, they are usually better than the rapacious dictatorships of the past. Until recently, a country's economic policies were designed to produce the maximum benefit for a tiny elite. Think of Africa in the 19th century, where whole nations were turned into regions of slave labor and economic extraction to benefit a small number of Europeans. What followed after decolonization in the 1950s were local dictators who were equally brutal and rapacious. Today, Africa is still home to some dictatorships and faces rampant corruption in certain areas, but compared with three decades ago or a century ago, there has been significant progress along almost every political, economic, and social measure. The fundamental reason for the rise of the rest, the fact that developing countries are growing much faster than in decades past, has to do with the diffusion of knowledge. When I visit developing countries, nearly everywhere I find they are run more effectively today than they were decades ago. Those at the helm of economic policy are almost invariably graduates of programs in economics from Western universities. They studied at, say, the University of Chicago or Georgetown or the London School of Economics, and then returned to their central banks and finance ministries to implement some of what they had learned. Healthcare is being provided in a more systematic and thoughtful way based on ideas that have been tried and proved elsewhere. These kinds of policies are reinforced by a broader culture of educational exchanges that takes place through conferences, meetings, publications, and televised conversation. It's not perfect by any means, but it is a lot better than it was 30 years ago. Social science is not science, 
Because as the Nobel Prize winning economist Herbert Simon put it, the subjects of our study think. But some academic learning has been applied in the real world. Governments have come to adopt best practices from the social sciences, though there are limits to progress in fields as messy as economics and political science. Even steps forward produce a host of unintended consequences that have to be dealt with. Advanced industrial countries continue to face many problems today. Yet consider their expansive ambitions to provide economic growth and social security for every one of their citizens. Governments have never tried to do so much for so many. Knowledge can be used for terrible purposes. Fascism, communism, and Islamic fundamentalism have all managed to weave a dangerous ideology out of elements of knowledge. But people have always sought power, and some of them have justified that pursuit through bad ideas. These ideas, in almost all such cases, are covers for power grabs. That's not to say that ideas do not have a life of their own. Nationalism and religion can be powerful ideologies that hold societies together and stir human beings to action, even horrific violence. But historically, this has not been enough to produce real success, the kind that produces long-term trends in a society's favor. Governments organized around bad political and economic ideas have required force, coercion, and bribery to succeed. And these are difficult to sustain. Countries like Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia failed because other countries, such as the United States, opposed them. And free societies like America prevailed in large part because they had greater staying power, because their organizing ideas were superior. U.S. strategy might have been better than Germany's and the Soviet Union's in World War II and the Cold War. But the real cause of victory was the ability of the U.S. economy to outproduce the Nazi and Soviet economies. In the long run, societies based on submission generally find themselves at odds with natural human impulses. The ones that have succeeded in some fashion, like China, have actually allowed a great deal of freedom and autonomy in several spheres of society while maintaining control in others. The more China opens itself up to a broad exploration of knowledge, to humanistic ideas, to open exchanges, in other words, the values that liberal education celebrates, the more the government will struggle to maintain its tight political control. The New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof has pointed to three ideas associated with the humanities that have positively shaped the world. First, he notes the philosopher Isaiah Berlin's warning that the belief in a single, all-encompassing truth inevitably produces blind arrogance, possibly leading to dangerous consequences. Second, he highlights John Rawls's contribution to political thought, that the most just society would be the one you would choose if you did not know how rich or poor or how talented or untalented you were when born into it. Since those are often matters of genetics and luck, Rawls posited that we should judge a society from behind this veil of ignorance. Lastly, Christoph highlights the work of Peter Singer, who has brought the treatment of animals and the pain that human beings often needlessly cause them to the fore of our moral consciousness. These are just a few examples. There are many other ideas in the social sciences and humanities that represent in some way or another an accumulation of knowledge and a growth in insight marking an advance in human affairs. 
Of course, most people read books, understand science and experience art not to change the world, but to change themselves. But is our current system of liberal education changing young people for the better? Chapter 6 In Defense of Today's Youth One of the enduring benefits of a liberal education is that it broadens us. When we absorb great literature, we come face to face with ideas, experiences, and emotions that we might never otherwise encounter in our lifetime. When we read history, we encounter people from a different age and learn from their triumphs and travails. When we study physics and biology, we comprehend the mysteries of the universe and human life. And when we listen to great music, we are moved in ways that reason cannot comprehend. This may not help make a living, but it will help make a life. We all play many roles, professional and personal, in one lifetime. A liberal education gives us a greater capacity to be good workers, but it will also give us the capacity to be good partners, friends, parents, and citizens. Does a liberal education make us better human beings? Students at colleges and universities certainly get a high-quality, expensive education as preparation to succeed in the outside world. But according to many critics, even the best students, and sometimes especially the best, are limited in crucial ways. To put it bluntly, the charge is they are achievement-oriented automatons focused on themselves and their careers. They do not seem interested in delving deep into the search for inner knowledge, giving rein to their passions, or developing their character. The me generation was the name given to the baby boomers. Time magazine ran a cover in 2013 on the millennials with the title, The Me, Me, Me Generation. In early 2001, the columnist David Brooks wrote a now-famous essay in The Atlantic titled, The Organization Kid, based on days of meetings he had with students and professors during a visit to Princeton University. In the essay, Brooks described the next generation of American leaders and their daily schedule. Crew practice at dawn, Classes in the morning, resident advisor duty, lunch, study groups, classes in the afternoon, tutoring disadvantaged kids in Trenton, a cappella practice, dinner, study, science lab, prayer session, hit the stairmaster, study for a few hours more. It's an impressive list, but Brooks found that this intense set of activities was mostly in the service of building a resume and came with little intellectual curiosity. Even more noticeable to him was the total lack of desire to think about moral issues, to be introspective, or to focus on the building of character or virtue. In the end, he concluded, At the top of the meritocratic ladder we have in America a generation of students who are extraordinarily bright, morally earnest, and incredibly industrious. They like to study and socialize in groups. They create and join organizations with great enthusiasm. They are responsible, safety-conscious, and mature. They feel no compelling need to rebel, not even a hint of one. They not only defer to authority, they admire it. Alienation is a word one almost never hears from them. They regard the universe as beneficent, orderly, and meaningful. At the schools and colleges where the next leadership class is being bred, one finds not angry revolutionaries, despondent slackers, or dark cynics, but the organization kid.
In 2014, the essayist William Dershowitz stepped up the criticism with his book Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. In it, Dershowitz recounts his experiences teaching undergraduates at Yale and describes them as having spent their lives getting ready to attend elite colleges but lacking any sense of direction once they arrived. They had jumped through one hurdle after another in order to get a liberal education, but they didn't know what to do with it once they had their degree. As a result, Dershowitz finds them to be privileged, entitled little shits is the phrase he uses, but intellectually and morally uncurious, uninterested in exploring the larger questions about the meaning of life and unwilling to take intellectual risks. They are comfortably bourgeois and achievement-oriented, but they care little about the inner self and the soul. The notion that young people are somehow callow and morally unserious is not a new charge. In 700 BC, the Greek poet Hesiod wrote about it. The philosophers Xenophon and Plato were dismayed by the moral decay of their youth. The Romans saw loss of virtue all around them. The Victorians decried the decline in religiosity in the next generation. And while America has always been different, born new, focused on the future, itself an experiment in modernity, it has had its own tradition of Jeremiads, from the Puritans to Henry David Thoreau to conservatives horrified by the 1960s to Christopher Lash, who wrote The Culture of Narcissism in 1979. They all worried about a new generation that was less interested in community and more interested in itself. The most recent round of critiques began with the conservative intellectual Alan Bloom and the publication of his 1987 book, The Closing of the American Mind. But since then, conservatives and liberals have jumped in with equal fervor. Brooks Dershowitz and Anthony Kronman, former dean of the Yale Law School, have all joined the chorus, sounding a similar plaintive tone. But most of the complaints today are quite different from the reactionary concerns of the past. After centuries of bemoaning the fact that the young are too rebellious and disrespectful, the problem today, it appears, is that they are not rebellious and disrespectful enough. They aren't willing to challenge conventional wisdom, neither the liberal pieties that offend Alan Bloom nor the conservative ones that gall Dershowitz. After having been pilloried for trying to destroy the bourgeois order in the 1960s and 70s, the youth are now scorned for being too bourgeois. Too many young people, it seems, are well-adjusted, responsible, and looking for good jobs. If only they would wander off campus and study tantric rituals, smoke pot, and read Hegel, and stage a sit-in or two, then they would show us their inner souls. Of course, imagine the reaction of many of the same critics were the college students actually to do that. You can't help but sympathize with the sophomore who said to me, I think that whatever we did, we would be falling short by some measure and people would write about that. In fact, the picture that the critics paint certainly does ring true in its focus on the culture of achievement that dominates students' lives at the top educational institutions today. But it's strange to blame the students for something that is largely beyond their control. After all, they did not devise the intense system of tests that comprise the gateway to American higher education, nor did they create the highly competitive job market in anxious economic times. Admissions offices now prize nothing less than perfection. 
I once asked the head of admissions at an Ivy League college, do you take in many kids who have failed in some significant way in high school? He immediately answered, no. That would place them at a disadvantage compared with others with better records. I pointed out that how one responds to and recovers from failure is one of the most important characteristics of an individual, probably one that reveals more about his or her future success. The admissions officer, a deeply educated scholar, said he understood, but noted that if he admitted kids who had failed in some way, with transcripts and SAT scores reflecting this failure, the college would drop in its rankings and its win-loss ratio against other key schools, that is, the percentage of students who, when admitted to two schools, accept one over the other. The pressure is intense for the colleges and the kids. Is it such a wonder that students respond as they do? The pressure doesn't stop once they get to college. The race continues, with markers set up to point them towards summer jobs, internships and fellowships, and finally full-time jobs. The process of getting hired at a prestigious bank or consulting firm now involves a marathon of interviews and examinations, with thousands applying for a few positions on offer. But the critics seem to feel that in confronting this grueling system of rewards, kids should take it easy, relax, follow their bliss and search for their souls. Apparently, Goldman Sachs will understand. Moreover, students' focus on achievement has not, so far as I can tell, produced young men and women who are in some way mean, selfish, or cruel. There's really no evidence for this at all. They are probably less bigoted, racist, and sexist than prior generations of students, something that's easy to caricature as political correctness, but is admirable nonetheless, especially if you're a minority, a woman, or gay. I've spent time on college campuses and around young people, and I certainly find them to be thoughtful, interesting, and stimulating. Professor Steven Pinker, who has spent much more time with college students teaching them, has written in the same vein. But these are anecdotes. Is there any evidence? In fact, there is. Since 1966, UCLA's Higher Education Research Institute has asked incoming college freshmen a set of questions. The data collected show the following. Over the last four decades, students have become more conscious of the need to make money. But much of that change took place from 1967 to 1987, and the percentage of freshmen who identify becoming well-off financially as a personal objective has steadied significantly since then. That's surely a rational response to an economy that has produced fewer good jobs, where the median income has flatlined, and where globalization and technology are replacing all kinds of once-privileged tasks. In such circumstances, to be concerned about one's future might be a sign of intelligence. Other life objectives that have risen in importance to students are becoming a community leader, helping others who are in difficulty, and interestingly, making a theoretical contribution to science, none of which are signs of selfishness. The data also show that students today combine their worldly aspirations with a strong desire to do good. The numbers who volunteer for programs like the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps have risen substantially. In 2014, Teach for America received over 50,000 applications, more than twice the number received in 2008. Many talented and highly credentialed students choose to work at nonprofits for a while. It's true that non-governmental organizations have become cool, but that's the point. 
They have become cool precisely because young people today view them as valuable and worthwhile ways to spend part or all of their lives. As much as any generation before them that might have gone into politics and government or volunteered for war and exploration, they want to do good, change the world, and follow their principles. They just do it in an incremental, practical, best practices kind of way. More McKinsey than Mother Teresa. Somewhat different from college students are the millennials. Generally, the term is used for people born from 1980 to 2000. The charges against them are similar, though, and nastier. The cover story in Time magazine mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, and written by its talented humor columnist, Joel Stein, accuses the millennials of narcissism, entitlement, and this is a new one, laziness. The first charge is presented as a cold, hard fact. Citing the National Institutes of Health, Stein writes, The incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that is now 65 or older. But as the journalist Elspeth Reeve has pointed out, this finding is disputed by other scholars who argue that the research merely shows that all young people tend to be somewhat narcissistic, but that that narcissism fades over time, for all. Or to quote from a 2010 study that Reeve cites, First, we show that when new data on narcissism are folded into pre-existing meta-analytic data, there is no increase in narcissism in college students over the last few decades. As for slothfulness, there's really no evidence for this at all. The basic problem for American workers of all ages has been that their hours and productivity keep rising, but their wages do not. A 2014 Nielsen report, Millennials Breaking the Myths, offers some data on the generation's attitude towards volunteering. In 2011, 75% made a donation to a charity, 71% raised money for one, and 57% volunteered, more than any other generation. The three causes they care the most about, according to the report, are education, poverty, and the environment. A study of the group sponsored by the Case Foundation, also in 2014, came to very similar conclusions. Of the 87% of millennials who had donated to a nonprofit, more than half had given more than $100. In a TED Talk explaining the behavior of millennials, marketing expert Scott Hess contrasts them with their predecessors, Generation X. Instead of being slackers, judgmental, and anti-corporate, he said, Millennials are leaning forward, engaged, inclusive, and tolerant, and they believe that commerce can be lubricated by conscience. And unlike generations before them, they don't view their parents as adversaries, but rather as friends and helpers. Perhaps I say this because I'm a parent, but is this so terrible? A constant refrain one hears about the young, whether millennials or students or young workers, is that they are utterly focused on themselves. They set up their own Facebook pages, tweet, and send pictures of themselves eating or playing sports. In a talk at Princeton in November 2012, David Brooks praised the self-abnegation of General George Marshall, who refused to ask for command of Operation Overlord, the D-Day invasion of Europe, because he thought it would be self-serving. I love that story about Marshall myself, but I also recognize that he lived in a different age. Those were times when large institutions, private and public, dominated life. They were powerful and stable, and they looked after individuals for their entire careers. 
Your task was to fit in, to put the interests of the institution above your own, to be a good team player. Then you would be rewarded with security and success. Marshall was subsequently appointed Secretary of State, then Secretary of Defense. Today, everyone is told that compact has been broken. Everything is in flux. You must be entrepreneurial and recognize that you will need to change jobs and even careers over a lifetime. No company will stay loyal to you, nor can you lock yourself into one place. The billionaire founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, wrote a book titled The Startup of You. Adapt to the future, invest in yourself, and transform your career to explain how to succeed in today's world. The ultimate irony, surely, is that the very commentators who are urging young Americans to be less self-obsessed are busily building their own personal brands, complete with websites, Facebook pages, and Twitter accounts. If it's right for them, why is it not right for everyone else? Some things the young don't do. In general, political activism on campuses has declined in recent decades, despite spikes during the first Reagan campaign and the first Obama campaign. But that lack of enthusiasm for politics again reflects a broader social trend. Most Americans are deeply disenchanted with politics. Younger Americans believe that the U.S. government has become dysfunctional and polarized. The young might choose to affect social change by working with NGOs rather than working for government, but that is about the mechanism, not the goal. And given the state of politics, the bureaucracy of government, and the intrusions of a hyperactive media, surely they are being rational, maybe even wise. Perhaps the most striking result from the Higher Education Research Institute survey involves the broadest issue. The number of incoming freshmen who consider developing a meaningful philosophy of life essential or very important. That's plummeted from 86% in 1967 to 45% in 2013. That number is probably what Brooks, Dershowitz, and others are describing in richer detail in their portrayals of college campuses today. And it makes them worried about the present and nostalgic for an earlier age. I understand the nostalgia. Today's students don't seem as animated by big arguments as generations of the past did. They don't make big speeches about grand philosophical issues. They don't stay up late at night arguing about Nietzsche or Marx or Tolstoy. But that is part of the tenor of the times, something students reflect rather than create. When I was growing up, the Cold War was raging, and that meant there was a great contest of ideas taking place around the world. People wondered whether countries such as India would go capitalist, communist, or something in between. These political ideas mattered to people, young and old, and had huge consequences. And the political ideas, in turn, rested on large philosophical ideas about the nature of human beings and societies. I arrived at college in 1982, which it turned out coincided with the last gasp of the ideological battle that had dominated the 20th century. Ronald Reagan had come to power and called the Soviet Union an evil empire. The Soviets were still on the march in much of the Third World. Communism and capitalism were still ideas in battle around the world. My friends and I would sit around in coffee shops and passionately debate the American nuclear buildup, the proxy war in Central America, Reagan's and Thatcher's policies. The divisions were deep, the answers were unknown, and the consequences were believed to be huge. In 1983, 
ABC aired a television movie called The Day After, dramatizing what life in America would look like in the wake of a nuclear war. It ran for two hours in prime time and was followed by an interview of then-Secretary of State George Shultz and a long discussion including Henry Kissinger, Elie Wiesel, Carl Sagan, William Buckley, and Robert McNamara. For weeks afterward, people talked about the movie and the politics and ethics involved in making it. College students were deeply engaged by these kind of events. They marched by the thousands over the divestment campaign against South Africa, American support for the Contras in Nicaragua, and the nuclear freeze. But it all emanated from that central philosophical-political contest of ideas between communism and capitalism, Leninism and democracy. We live in a very different age today, one in which there are fewer grand ideological debates with great consequences. It's inconceivable that anything like the day after would be made, let alone trigger much discussion. Islamic terrorism is a security threat and did provoke some debate after 9-11, but it has limited potency and certainly no chance of seducing a non-Muslim country. Even in Muslim countries, jihadists have to resort to terror precisely because they can convince only a small band of extremists of the strength of their ideas. They pose a threat, but not an ideological threat. We have noisy partisanship in Washington, but over fairly routine political differences. On issues, both parties are actually much closer than they were 30 or 40 years ago. As a result, our youth are not very ideological. They combine a mix of impulses, capitalist, socially liberal, supportive of social welfare, but uncomfortable with bureaucracy and regulation. It doesn't quite add up to a passionate political philosophy, and it certainly doesn't take them to the barricades. Our age is defined by capitalism, globalization, and technology. The trends changing life come from those forces, powering a new information revolution that creates new industries overnight, pushing the frontiers of computer learning, changing medicine in fundamental ways, allowing billions to rise in China and India, and altering the structures of economic, political, and social power everywhere. The icons of the age are entrepreneurs, technologists, and business people. Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos are far more important symbols than any politician today, and they occupy the space that iconic political figures did in earlier eras. The young reflect today's realities. Their lives are more involved with these economic and technological forces than with ideology and geopolitics. And that means there is less scope for grand theorizing, fewer intense late-night bull sessions, less stirring eloquence at the student forums and political unions. It's a new world, and the young know it. But is this so bad? Are the issues that students today think about less important than those of war and peace? Are their heroes inferior to those of past ages? The geeky culture of the technology era is less conspicuously interested in ideas than Cold War society was with its great statesmen and philosophers. But is it any worse? Consider Bill Gates, perhaps too old now to be sexy, but certainly the iconic figure of this age. A technology entrepreneur and businessman, Gates was one of the first larger-than-life private figures in contemporary America. He is informal, brainy, merit-oriented, and seemingly uninterested in showing off his wealth. On the whole, these are great values to transmit. 
Gates is also deeply interested in ideas that range from science to economics to education. His speeches and blog posts are filled with discussions of books, including arguments, analyses, and data about them. His kind of wonkery may not look like a grand exercise in philosophy, but he is actively engaged with important ideas that could change the world. More important, his main handiwork now, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, sees its central mission as saving the largest number of human lives it can, no matter where they live, what color their skin is, or what passport they carry. In other words, it is built on an idea that all human life is of equal value, something only a few charities believe in or act on. This might once have been considered a Christian idea, that we are all equal in God's eyes. But Gates has translated it into a secular one, and he is giving away the world's largest fortune in service of it. His friend Warren Buffett, the second richest man in America, is giving away most of his wealth to the same cause, without asking for any credit, not even to have his name put on the foundation's door. That is surely an act that bears some similarity to Marshall's modesty. In his writings and talks, David Brooks emphasizes his concern that the young lack a language about virtue today. They are, he believes, morally inarticulate. And it's true that we don't use words like honorable, noble, and virtuous much these days. But surely that is how Gates and Buffett's actions should be described. They are examples of people who have been moved to take large, important actions out of deep convictions, ideas, and values out of a philosophy of life and a commitment to those ideas. Their model is surely as inspiring as any statesman or general of the past who spoke in lofty tones about good and evil, honor and sacrifice. Not everyone can do what Gates and Buffett are doing. College students today search for morality and the meaning of life in different ways than in prior ages, as with any new generation, especially in times of tremendous change. They are more incremental and practical. They seek truth, but perhaps through quieter avenues than the heroic ones of the past. They try to combine their great urges with a good life. The Higher Education Research Institute survey data showed that the objective most important to students, besides making money, is raising a family. That number has been remarkably stable over the years, rising somewhat, and is now around 75%. It's a bourgeois concern. But is there really something soulless about trying to make a living, create a home, and raise a family? One of the higher achievements of the liberal democratic project is surely that people today can spend less time worrying about revolution and war and focus instead on building a private sphere within which they can find meaning, fulfillment, and happiness. I remember reading once about a judge in South Africa who spoke to American college students. She contrasted the high-stakes politics in her country, the breakdown of apartheid, the birth of a new country, with the trivia she read about in American newspapers. And she concluded by fervently hoping that one day her country would be normal enough to have its papers filled with trivia. There are plenty of challenges abroad and at home, injustice and imbalances that need to be corrected and reformed. But there are also those times and places where people are lucky enough that private virtues might be cultivated. As John Adams famously wrote during the American Revolution, I must study politics and war that our sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. 
Our sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, and naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. So maybe today they're writing apps rather than studying poetry. But that's an adjustment for the age. These are not the sort of ambitions that have people rallying to the ramparts and declaiming in purple prose. But they are still real and authentic and important. And they are worth a brief defense, which is what I have attempted here. This much I will concede. Because of the times we live in, all of us, young and old, do not spend enough time and effort thinking about the meaning of life. We do not look inside of ourselves enough to understand our strengths and weaknesses. And we do not look around enough at the world in history to ask the deepest and broadest questions. The solution, surely, is that even now, we could all use a little bit more of a liberal education. In Defense of a Liberal Education was written and read by Fareed Zakaria. It was recorded by Noriko Okabe. Editing and post-production by Stephen Strassman. Terry Hogan was the mix engineer. The associate producer was Michael Noble. In Defense of a Liberal Education was produced and directed by Carol Shapiro. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. Also from Simon & Schuster Audio, The Post-American World 2.0 by Fareed Zakaria, read by the author.